few years ago, I had the privilege of traveling, uh, I think three times, to Sri Lanka. Beautiful country, beautiful people, beautiful food, beautiful, although sometimes excessively hot weather. Uh, but in many ways, it's just a wonderful place to be. I was teaching a course. I was uh, in this uh, Bible school building in the capital. And um, there was one thing about it I didn't particularly enjoy. I went up. The first day I arrived, obviously jet-lagged from travel, and, and I was shown to my room. This is a three-story building in the middle of Colombo. And I was staying on the third floor. There was nobody else in the building at night, just a guard at the door to make sure I felt secure. And so I had this uh, sort of upper suite to myself. I say suite, that's a bit of a stretch. But it was an, a decent room with a bed and a desk and a, and a bathroom attached. And so I, I got there and I crashed. I, you know, I went to bed. And if there's one thing I'm not a fan of, it's creepy crawlies. And so as hot as it was, I felt the pressure to keep the sheet completely over me. There was no mosquito net. I forgot to bring one. And so I was kind of hiding like a wimp in this uh, bed, hearing all sorts of things, which probably weren't there, and uh, went to sleep. Woke up in the night, probably because of jet lag, and uh, kind of felt my way over to the bathroom and turned on the light and heard that sound, that scurrying of little feet. In fact, they felt like, sounded like big feet, like sort of Doc Martin's feet. I mean, these were big feet. And, and I looked in horror as these cockroaches disappeared from the floor. And I'm not talking like, you know, cockroaches you see in the pet store. I'm talking proper, you know, like nightmare cockroaches. And as soon as the light came on, they scurried away and disappeared through holes that didn't seem to fit through. It was remarkable. And somehow I survived the week. Uh, cockroaches are probably one of the grossest things in the world. And thankfully, they tend to hang out in the dark. As soon as the light comes on, they scurry away. Our culture has elements that used to be a little bit more cockroachy than they are now. In fact, the, the letter that we're going to look at today that Jesus wrote is a letter that pinpoints an issue uh, that is uh, potentially a cockroach kind of issue for us. Something that as soon as the light shines, we hide it and we let it retreat into the background. 50 years ago, the whole culture was like that. Now, the culture is celebrating the cockroach. Now it's, it's in your face, it's, in the, in the, it's on the television, it's in the magazines, it's everywhere. It's just like, let's celebrate this stuff that we used to be embarrassed about. It's the subject of purity. And we're going to think about that as we look at this letter. And I suppose there's going to be a temptation for all of us to have a little bit of a cockroach response. You know, that whatever God puts his finger on in our lives, we kind of let it hide. But I want to encourage us today to have the opposite response, to allow the light to shine and to look to God to bring about change. And actually, as far as the motivation for change, I'm really excited about this one because I suppose typically when we think of issues of purity and, and godliness as opposed to impurity and all the sort of gross stuff that goes on, our tendency is to think that it's going to be a message about guilt. It's not. In fact, the motivation that Jesus gives in this passage is absolutely astonishing. I'm not going to tell you what it is until we get there. But let's jump in and look at it. We're in Revelation chapter 2, uh, page 1029, I think, in your Bibles. Um, 
It's the last letter in this chapter. We've got three more to come in chapter three to the church in Thyatira. Let me just tell you that Thyatira was the least significant of all seven towns. It wasn't famous for temples. It wasn't famous for uh, pretty much anything, really. It, it had some businesses. It, it was a place where they produced purple cloth. And so if you've read through the book of Acts, you might remember the, the name of Lydia. She was from Thyatira. She was a seller of purple. I always think that's kind of funny, like how do you sell a color? But it means purple dyed cloth. Okay, and so, so this was a town where... A small population, people were workers. You could almost call it kind of a working class town. People just getting on with their daily lives, doing their jobs in a not very exciting place. But a place that Jesus wanted to communicate with. So let's start into the letter, verse 18. Jesus says this, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Let's pause there. We've got three descriptions of Jesus straight away. First of all, we're told he's the son of God. That's a very high title, isn't it? That's, that's a title that communicates power and authority. He's in charge. He's the one that God has given authority for all the nations to him. So he's the son of God. This is a very elevated kind of an image. And then we're told that he's got eyes like a flame of fire. That's a little bit intimidating, isn't it? Well, what is that picture? If you, if you can try to imagine in your mind the, uh, the description that Jesus was conveying, that the one who is in charge, the one who is on the throne, the one who is over everything, has eyes that can penetrate everything. He can see it all. He knows what's going on. That's kind of the image, isn't it? He's the all-seeing one who's in charge. And thirdly, we're told that he's got feet like burnished bronze. Burnished bronze is the, uh, it's the kind of an alloy of metals that they use to uh, contain fire in the temple. And so you have this kind of continuously burning fire, like the altar, for example. You'd want it to be made out of a metal that wouldn't melt. That would be embarrassing if your altar melted. So burnished bronze is kind of a, a, a metal that describes that sort of burning, intense heat, judgment. And so here this description of Jesus is very impressive, isn't it? He's, he's in charge, he sees everything, he's coming to judge. It's almost intimidating. In fact, it should be intimidating unless we know who he is for us, unless we're trusted him and we know that he's not coming to bring judgment on us, then this should scare us to death. Jesus, who is in charge as uh, the power has been given to him by the Father, the one who sees everything, the one who's coming in judgment. And then he goes on to the middle section. Remember, these letters have a beginning, a middle, and an end. The beginning's always about Jesus, the middle is about the church, and the end is about the future. So the middle bit always begins with, I know. And this is really encouraging. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. Sounds like a good church, doesn't it? I know, because remember, he sees everything. I know all that's going on in your church, Thyatira. I know everything that's going on and I know that there's a growing love and faith amongst you. 
that love that, that is planted by God within people, that as they become believers, they start to love in a way that they never have before. And Jesus says, I know your love and your works of service. I think those two are connected. Your love that flows out from you results in you getting down on your hands and knees and serving one another. You're sacrificially caring and loving one another. Your faith, looking to God and trusting him, which leads to steadfast endurance. As the pressure comes against you, as you face difficult times, your faith and your love are working. This is a, a, a wonderful verse, isn't it? Wouldn't it be great if, if Jesus would say this about us at Trinity? I know your love and I know your faith. It's resulting in acts of service to one another. It's resulting in steadfast endurance. And then he says, at the end of the verse, your latter works exceed the first. So, you know, you started, but it's growing. There's more love now. There's more faith now. There's more works of service. There's more steadfast endurance. That's the normal expectation of Christians, that we grow. I suppose we could ask ourselves, uh, Are we growing as a church? Am I growing as an individual? Is there an increasing sense that that Christ is shaping my character and it's showing more and more? I suppose that could be quite challenging. It's very easy, isn't it, to sort of settle. Think we can stand still and just sort of coast for a while. But the normal Christian life is a life of growth. Like a a newborn child, we've got several newborns, not so newborn now, I suppose, in the church, but but the latest little crop of uh, Trinity Chippeninians, whatever we call them. And, and, you know, they're born and you feed them and they sleep and they sometimes cry. And and, and it's it's almost imperceptible, isn't it? As as a parent, you go, whoa, what happened? This one-week-old's become a one-month-old's become a one-year-old. And yet, for people who only see them once a week, we notice a difference every single time. Because it's normal, it's growth, that's what happens. When there's life, that it leads to growth and it's completely normal. And that's the way it should be for us as Christians too. That as we come into the family, we become part of God's people, there's an imperceptible but a continual growth, or there should be. Unless we're stalling, unless we're resisting, unless we're, we're turning our back on him, he will continue to be growing us. And maybe there's a challenge there, but it's also an encouragement. Here at Trinity, we're a church, what, three and a half years old now? Some of us within this church haven't been Christians three and a half years. And it's, it's encouraging and it's exciting, isn't it, to sort of see the growth in one another. It's exciting to see the growth in a newborn. It's actually exciting to see the growth in someone who's been a Christian for 30 years as well. That's normal Christian life. And, and this church sounds like a good one. Faith and love and service and steadfast endurance. In some ways, this church is the exact opposite of Ephesus. Remember Ephesus, the first one? I know your uh, diligence and your determination and your discernment and you can't tolerate evil. And and yet I have this against you. Do you remember that first letter? I had this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. That was a church that had truth without love. That was a challenging letter. Here's a letter that says the opposite. Here's a church that have love without truth, as we'll see. The, the truth isn't gripping them in the way that it should. And so even so, there, even though there's love and there's faith and there's these good things happening, there's a danger. We're not given the option of being a 
kind of a truth church or a love church. Here at Trinity, we, uh, we talk about the transforming power of the love of God, but we believe that the love of God is known through the truth of God's word. We're not sort of pushing aside truth in order to focus on love. We're saying, no, in the truth of God's word, here's the reality of what God's love is like, and this is what transforms us. This is what changes us. But there's a danger. There's a danger with any church that, that if we're not careful, we can start to emphasize the love and the niceness and the kindness and the community and the friendship, and we can not focus enough on the truth that's going to guide us and guard us and protect us. That's what I think was happening here. So let's go on and see what the issues were. Let me read a few verses to us from verse 20. And then we'll come back and make sense of it back then. And then we'll transition it over to us today. Verse 20, Jesus says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each one of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. That sounds quite serious, doesn't it? Jezebel and sickbed and destroy, kill her children. Okay, let's make sense of it. First of all, um, imagine this church. It's it's probably, potentially, a fairly small group. We don't know that, but it's a fairly small town. Like I said, it was a sort of a working class town. It was a town where you would have a trade if, if, uh, if you were typical. And your trade might be purple cloth. It might be tent making. It might be, you know making some, some other thing that travelers coming through can use, sort of the, the, all the leather stuff for horses, whatever it is, you know. And, and you're working in your business, and, and that trade would have a guild. Think trade union. Some of you might be old enough to remember when the trade unions really had power. Well, they would have had real power in Thyatira. They would have exerted a real pressure culturally. There was a pressure on this church, a pressure to participate. If you were going to be part of a trade guild, you would go to the feasts. Uh, You'd be expected at least to go to the feasts. And as part of the feasts, there would be the idol worship. And as well as the idol worship, there would be the immorality. And there's this really kind of sinister environment in which to be a Christian. But this letter is targeting this woman, Jezebel. She seems to be a woman within the church. She calls herself a prophetess. Okay, so she's kind of within the church community and she's teaching and she's influencing in a way that I think Jezebel is her nickname. I don't don't think she would have walked around calling herself Jezebel. It's not typically a name people choose for themselves. But I think it was a label that was given to her to reflect the kind of woman that she was. 
Jezebel in the Old Testament was the wife of Ahab. She was a, uh, an evil woman who seduced and led astray the people of Israel. She introduced false worship of false gods and, and all sorts of sexual grossness came into the history of Israel because of this woman Jezebel. And so Jesus, who sees everything and knows everything, is looking at the church in Thyatira and he says, she's the problem. He's not kind of beating around the bush. She, that woman, is the problem. Now, I suppose the danger for us is that we tend to think false teachers, Jezebel, we tend to have an image that comes into our mind. It's almost like in a cartoon. You know in a cartoon when there's a bad person? The baddie always has the eye mask and the prison suit, right? It's kind of really obvious. It's designed for three-year-olds. And sometimes we read the Bible a bit like that. And we think Jezebel is going to be this kind of hideously over-made-up woman with, you know, grotesque lips or something. Because that's the way Jezebel as a name has kind of come down to us culturally. Truth is, she was probably very convincing, very compelling. She would have sounded very spiritual. She would have sounded like she had a direct access to God that other people didn't have and and she could speak for him and people were kind of caught up in what she said and so she had a following. She would have been convincing in what she said in terms of, of wanting to please God and wanting to live the right way. And hey, come on guys, if we're going to be a, an effective way, a, a church in this culture, we need to drop some of our standards because, you know, the Christ has paid it all and we can, we can participate more freely. And, and she was encouraging stuff that actually kind of would have made sense. The reason I say that is because it's so easy to think 2,000 years later, oh, those silly people, how could they fall for such a thing? But the truth is that someone can come into a church and influence very, very easily. They can sound spiritual. They can sound so, uh, so on target. They can seem so close to God and their message can make so much sense. And their motivation sounds so good because it's all about reaching the lost or whatever you know, kind of their angle is. And before you know it, you can get drawn into it. And these people were getting drawn into her sin. Last week, Andy spoke about Pergamum. And in Pergamum, it talked about uh, the, the issue of food offered to idols and sexual immorality. Notice this time it's the other way around. Now it's sexual immorality and food offered to idols. The two go together in that culture. But the emphasis now is on the sexual immorality. And so Jesus is saying, look, she's the problem. She's leading people astray. And those who are completely on board with her, those who have completely bought into her teaching and are a part of the Jezebel faction, Jesus says, I'm going to kill her children. I mean, this is no soft stuff. He's harsh, right? It's really strong, not harsh. But you know what I mean? There's a real strength to this that she's going to be dealt with. There's going to be a consequence for her. And those who are hers, those who are completely uh, in her camp, they're going to be dealt with. Everyone else, there's a warning. The warning is repent. Otherwise, it's going to happen to you too. Repent, turn back, come away from that. And so I suppose as we're looking at it from 2,000 years on, we can sort of look and diagnose some of the issues, can't we? The, the lack of understanding of the Bible, the lack of emphasis perhaps on the Bible in that church, which left them open and vulnerable to whoever was the most convincing in their midst. The pressure of their culture, 
a pressure that, that said, you've got to participate if you're going to get on in the work world. You've got to be a part of this. You've got to play the games if you're going to get the benefits. And so a culture that was just constantly pressuring and then from within teaching that led them astray. Let's bring that over to us. Let's sort of uh, transition over a couple of millennia uh, into our situation. First of all, is it possible that we sort of take the Bible for granted and don't really know it? That's entirely possible, isn't it? If the Bible remains closed from Sunday to Sunday, it's not really helping shape the way you view life. If, you, if your access to the Bible is just a, a token dip here and there, it's not challenging and changing and shaping and marking and informing your life. What about the culture? Do we know what it's like to live in a relatively small, insignificant town where people basically just get on with their jobs? A culture that is massively pressurized in the whole arena of sexuality? Actually, we do, don't we? That sounds like a description of our culture and our lives. Even in my relatively limited lifetime, there's been some real transition. I remember uh, the, the kind of the uproar in the 80s when Channel 4 was launched. Was that 82? Some of you don't remember 82, but Channel 4 was launched and it had a soap opera that was a little bit edgy called Brookside. And that kind of stirred people because it wasn't safe like Coronation Street. You know, and there was this kind of issue that was there bubbling away. And then the, it seemed like every year it would just get pushed a little bit further. This happened, this happened. Oh, here's, here's a couple of men in this soap opera. And here's, a, here's this happening. And then there's this rape portrayed. And, and before you know it, things that were shocking in the 1970s became normal for the 1980s. And then things that were shocking in the 1980s became normal in the 1990s. The lyrics of songs. I remember Frankie Goes to Hollywood creating a stir in 1984. Right around, well, I was what, eight years old at the time. And they actually swore in one of their songs. Imagine that now. You see, we become desensitized over time, don't we? We, we get used to it. We see it on the television, we see it in the newspapers, we see it in the magazines. Things that years ago you'd have to go to some weird seedy place to buy in a brown paper bag now is in your face in a normal magazine. Not just the top shelf stuff, normal magazines, normal newspapers. I go to the barbers, I was sat there at the barbers the other day with Joel, and the temptation is to grab the newspaper, obviously you turn it over, you don't look at the front, right? You turn it over when you're with your son, just to see uh, all, the, uh, all the kind of football stuff. But if you go two, two or three pages too far, whoa, don't want to see that, son. Because it's become so normal that it's just everywhere. Films, TV, all around us, we're bombarded with sexual images, and the temptation then is going to be to gradually let things creep in our own lives. I suppose a mature Christian, uh, you could describe a mature Christian as being someone who over time has grown to love Christ so much that their values and, and their desires reflect his in far more ways than they used to. Which means that I suppose in an ideal world, if we were all as mature as we should be and could be and eventually will be, we would be repulsed by everything impure. But actually we know we're not there yet, don't we? And so the immature approach is to say, okay, what can I get away with? What's allowable? What doesn't 
you know, raise alarm bells. And so we're living in a time where sexual immorality and impurity is so in your face and it's so celebrated by our culture that it's incredibly accessible, even the worst of things. Things that years ago would have to be ordered and difficult to get hold of, now they're just a click of a mouse button away. They're right there. It's a serious thing for us to think about in terms of our children and our teenagers, isn't it? Every smartphone, every iPad, every computer screen is like an open sewage pipe, if we're not careful, just pouring junk into their lives, junk that you can't really get rid of the smell of. It would be foolish of us to just assume they won't notice it. But it's also foolish of us to think that we're safe as adults. And so uh, let's just think for a few moments some of the, the, the kind of encroaching ways that immorality and impurity can creep in and become normal. There is the, the big stuff. There's all the kind of really hard pornography that's easily, instantly accessible. There's uh, inappropriate relationships, adultery, affairs. That stuff happens as much as ever. All right, there's all sorts of things. You can go to places Amsterdam, Las Vegas, Bangkok. You know, there's images that come to mind with certain places. So there's what, what you might call the really kind of overt, gross stuff. The danger is that if we're slightly immature, we'll say, well, I don't do that, so I must be okay. Now, if you are doing that, you need to deal with it. Something needs to change. But if you're not, it doesn't mean that you're safe, does it? What's the definition of Pornography. I looked it up. The definition of pornography is written or visual material intended to stimulate sexually. Now, by that definition, most of television is pornography, isn't it? Most TV shows, most films have a section within them that are intended to stimulate sexually. It could be visual. It could be something you're reading. And so I've mentioned this before, but let me just say it again. That, that, that there's this sort of category that I call sanctified Christian porn. It's the stuff that we think we can get away with because it doesn't look, you know, triple X and gross. It's, it's safe. But actually, if we allow God to search our hearts, our motives are not good when we go there. Romance novels that allow you to escape the life you're living and the frustrations of it and step into the, the kind of the fantasy world of the characters. That can be pornographic for some. Television shows, incredibly powerful medium these days. Films. Have you ever found yourself watching either a TV show or a film and even you haven't thought it through but you just, you just want those two to get together? I mean, her husband's nasty, he doesn't care, he doesn't listen. That guy is so cute, you know, he's so kind. Oh, I wonder when they're going to get together. Oh, they got together. Oh, she's getting a divorce. Let's celebrate the divorce. And, and we, before we know it, the media has drawn us into a whole set of values that never reflect Christ's values. Would, would we sit there and celebrate divorce with Jesus sat next to us? Would we celebrate adultery on the screen if Jesus was there? I don't think so. And yet the media does that. It draws us in. And you might say, oh, it's, it's, it's fine. It's not, it's not the hard stuff. But it's only fine because we've got used to it. It's only fine, in quotes, because our standards have dropped and, and we've allowed ourselves to kind of become tainted. And so there's television, there's uh, films, there's social media. 
A few years ago, I was speaking to a group of students, and I said, some of you don't struggle with pornography, but you've got an alternative version called Facebook. And you can surf through that, and you can see pictures of people that you know, and sometimes they dress a certain way. And I just kind of, you know, spelled it out a little bit for them. And afterwards, this guy came up to me, and he said, you nailed me. He said, no one's ever said that before, but that's totally what I've been doing. I've been living in a fantasy world driven by social media. That's the world we live in, isn't it? It's always encroaching, always clamoring for us, trying to draw us, whether it's uh, visual, whether it's written, whether it's hardcore, whether it's soft, or whether it's, quote, sanctified. We are in a world that is pornographically overwhelming. Maybe it's something that's not visual so much as experienced. Maybe it's a relationship at work, someone that you... Uh, you've interacted with at the coffee machine and just the odd comment or the little smile or the, the little comment. There's nothing in it. Nothing's ever happened. Nothing will ever happen. And yet it's gone over a line and you feel it inside because it's become flirtatious. It's stimulating something that you shouldn't be messing with. You see, I could keep going on and I can talk about different uh, kind of categories of life. Uh, and I think eventually most of us, not all of us, but most of us will find ourselves going, oh, Actually, yeah, I do fall into that. And it's not my goal to make us feel guilty. It's my goal for us to realize that we're not as safe as we feel. We're not as secure as we'd like to think we are. Oh, that would never happen to me. Yes, it could. We live in a culture where it's overwhelming. And what about within the church? As far as I know, we've got no false teachers. As far as I know, there's no prophetess in our midst that's trying to lead us astray and seduce us. But there is always danger, even within the church. We've spoken as elders, and we've said, you know what? We've got no reason to be concerned in the sense of any specifics, but we are a young church with a lot of young people, relatively speaking, young couples, all the challenges of raising children, all the difficulties that come with that, the feeling neglected, the feeling uncared for. And it wouldn't take much, would it? Wouldn't take much for something to happen. We don't want that. We pray that that won't happen in this church. But it would be naive to think that there isn't things happening within individual lives. To think that there are no cockroaches within our lives that scurry away when the light shines but then come out again at night. And so what's the motivation? The the lesson, I suppose, is to to bring it into the light. I'm going to just say that a few times as we finish up here. Bring it into the light, whatever it is, whether it's something really serious and kind of major that you think is going to shake somebody's world to hear about, or whether you just need to be honest with someone and say, you know what, I've kind of been watching this TV show and I think it's for the wrong reasons. We need to bring it into the light. Because the moment these things are brought out into the light and we talk to a friend about them, the power gets pulled away. It's like the, it's like the power lead just gets pulled out of the back and suddenly it's not attractive. If I'm stood uh, outside a, a cinema that's showing something decidedly dodgy, my flesh would want to go into that. I'd be drawn towards that. But if I get on the phone and I speak to Andy or I speak to Melanie or Dave or whoever and say, hey, I'm standing outside this cinema and they're showing this, they don't even need to say anything. The fact that they know takes away all my motivation to go in. That's what it means to walk in the light. 
to let the light of God's word, the light of the values of Christ shine into our lives. But we need to be a church that's willing to open up, to not be plastic and fake, but to be real with one another. To say, hey, would you pray for me? I'm struggling with this. Hey, would, would you pray for me and ask me how it's going at work because this, this conversation got a little bit too friendly and I'm feeling like maybe that wasn't appropriate and now I've got to keep working with this person and, you know, would you pray for me? Or, or uh, I've, I've got caught up on social media. I've got caught up in a TV show. I've got caught up in pornography. Whatever it is, the moment you talk to someone, you're going to find that the power dissipates and together we can support one another. You see, the goal here is not for us to feel guilty. There there should be a sense of guilt with sin. I'm not saying that's wrong. But in this passage, the motivation is, is remarkably different to that. Let me show you what I mean. The motivation to live a pure life now as Jesus Uh, invites us towards the end of the passage. Where are we? Verse 25. He says, only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers, here's the promise. The one who lives the Christian life, the one whose faith overcomes the world. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him, now see if you recognize these words. To him or her, I will give him, I will give authority over the nations And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, that that may not ring a bell, but if you've read your Old Testament, you might go, hang on a second. What's the promise there? The one who overcomes will rule them. He will give him authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, smashed pots. That's from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is an incredibly significant passage. It's a passage that says that the, the nations gather together to rebel against God. But God is in total control. And he's given all authority to his son. And his son is going to rule over the nations. And he's going to smash all of the opposition. It's an incredible picture of God in action. And what's Jesus saying here? He's saying, you live a pure life now. Live for me now. That's, that, that's the normal Christian life. Is, you know, there'll, there'll be mistakes. There'll be times where you don't you know, confess that, get that sorted. But the normal Christian life is, is a trajectory toward heaven. And guess what happens when we get past this life? It's not just that we won't be tempted anymore, but praise God, that's true. It's not just that we won't sin anymore, although praise God, that's also true. What Jesus is saying is, after now comes the time when we get to rule with him. He's taking verses that are specifically about him on the throne, ruling the nations, rod of iron, and he says, that's what I'm going to give you. You might think, that's ridiculous. Why would he give that to me? But that's part of the Christian promise. That we're not just going to live forever happily in the future beyond this life as recipients. We're going to be participants. We're going to join Jesus in his rule. We're going to join Jesus in what he does. There's a couple of places. There's a place in the Gospels where Jesus is talking to his disciples. and He says, look, if you're faithful over a few things, then you will be put in charge of a few cities. 
If you're faithful over many things, you'll be entrusted with many cities. And you go, what do you mean cities? After this life, when Jesus comes back to rule over the world, whether it's for a period of time before the end of history, or if that doesn't happen, some people think that when Jesus comes back, we step into eternity. Either way, after Jesus returns, we get to rule with him. We get to sit on the throne with him. We get to hold the iron rod with him. We get to to be part of his judgment. There's another place where Paul's talking to Christians who are having this dispute and they're like taking it to the courts, like Judge Judy or whatever, and they're taking their disputes to the courts. (coughs) And Paul says, don't you realize that you're going to judge angels? No, I didn't. (laughs) That's amazing. Do you see what Jesus is saying? You're in, the, you're in the mud now. You're kind of struggling in the mess of this world now. Be pure. Live for me now. Because in the future, you're going to be sitting with me in judgment over that impurity. That's an amazing thought. And he adds a second promise. And he says also to him, I will give the morning star. The morning star is a, an image of Christ himself later in the book of Revelation. But it's also an image of hope. In the darkness of the night, you have uh, all the hours going through the night. We don't recognize it because of electricity, but for them, they knew what the morning star was. As you get towards the end of the night, it's like the darkness almost increases and then suddenly this star arises and it, it kind of gives you hope because that leads on to the sunrise. The night is coming to an end. And what a message that is for us. <coughs> Excuse me. Here we are in the darkness of an increasingly dark culture where it's not enough to be sexually explicit. It has to be sexually alternative. And then it gets celebrated. And if you dare to not buy into it, then there's something wrong with you. That's the culture we're living in. And it's overwhelming and sometimes it feels overpowering. And Jesus says, hey, look, in the future, you're going to rule with me. Hang in there because even though it seems so dark, the morning star is coming. The hope for the future, Jesus himself is coming. And so hang in there. Keep my works to the end. Live for me as you live with me. Jesus is inviting us. Not just because of guilt and, you know, whatever. In this case, that's not the focus at all. In this case, it's in light of what's to come. In light of the position you're going to have. Live a pure life now. That's a privilege Purity is a privilege for us. Let's look to Jesus and ask him to help. He knows what we're facing. He sees it all. He knows how powerful the temptations can be. Let's ask him to give us the help to walk faithfully with him until the end. And then we're going to have to ask him to help us know how to rule because that's beyond our ability to get our heads around. But that day's coming and he'll lead us into that really well. But let's pray. And what I want us to do as we finish the message is, is just take a couple of minutes. I know we're, we're running short on time, but I think it's important after a message like this for us to just pause and reflect and, and talk to God just privately, just quietly. And to say, okay, Lord, what... What is there? Is there something that, that, that is in my life that you want to put your finger on? Is there some habit, some relationship, some area of compromise? Is it something I'm watching, something I'm doing? Is there some step I need to take? Do I, I've put off getting accountability software. Maybe now's the time, Lord. 
have a little chat with the Lord. But I'd encourage you, don't just talk to the Lord about it now. Talk to somebody else about it afterwards. In fact, maybe within this minute or two of just quietly talking to God, maybe you should be talking to him about who you're going to talk to and what you're going to say. I've kind of set it up. I've made it possible. The conversation's not quite so awkward. But it still takes a step of faith to say, hey, brother, sister, can I share something? I'm struggling with this. You won't be condemned. You won't be judged. You won't be kicked out. You'll be supported. You'll be loved. You'll be cared for. And so let's just take a couple of minutes to personally talk to God and to anticipate what the next step should be. And then the band's going to come up and we'll sing a couple, however many songs to finish our time together. Amen.